Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. I pray this is starting in verse 18 of Ephesians 1. I pray that the with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may comprehend the hope to which he has called you. What are the rich benefits of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the incomparable greatness of his power available for us who believe according to the exercise of his mighty strength which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms infinitely superior to every ruler, authority, power, or dominion, every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he placed all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Wow. Barclay does this. I pray with the eyes of your heart enlightened. I like Mounce's way. New King James says the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. And Paul is praying for that. But, but the way the Greek is stationed, he said, I pray that or pray that with the eyes of your heart enlightened. And it's more, more of the sense of this is a foregone conclusion. You're going to be enlightened. And when you get enlightened, then you're going to be able to comprehend the hope. And, and we talked about that, that, you know, faith can only believe for what it can see. You know, it's, um, I, I saw a great illustration, um, Matt, my son-in-law, the, his pastor was preaching this past weekend, and he had a guy come up and stand up on one of these chairs, and he, he was facing the pastor, and he said, do you trust me? He said, yeah. He said, well... And what I want you to do is just throw your hands up and fall backwards. And the guy kind of looked at him like, there ain't nobody behind me. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. That's a hard floor. And uh, he said, oh, okay. And then he called six guys up and had them line up three and three and interlock their arms. And he said, now turn around and look. And he looked and he said, now. Do you trust me and do you trust them? If you do, throw your hands up and fall backwards. Well, he threw his hands up, he fell backwards, and they caught him. And his point was, people talk all the time about blind faith. Blind faith is really an oxymoron. You can only have faith when you set your sight on something the Word says. You have to have an enlightenment of, of this is God's will for me. Now, you can put your faith in natural things, yes. I've made the, the, the illustration. I go out tonight, I'm going to put my keys in my car and turn it over, and i got faith that car is going to start. My faith will either be answered or not answered to the ability of my car. And I've driven some cars over the years where my faith wasn't answered quite often. You turn the key and it just go click. Um, but with God, you can only put faith in God when you know his will. Faith, and Brother Hagin used to preach this hard. Faith begins where the will of God is known. 
until you know from the Bible and can really go to a, a Bible verse and say, this is for me. You can't have faith for that. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. Once you get your heart enlightened, once you get light, once you get revelation, suddenly you will get some hope for that. And not just it's the hope to which all of us as Christians are called, but I like the last part of verse 18. And what are the rich benefits of his glorious inheritance that's already among us? We, the, the, the things that we're believing God for, God's already put them in us. You know, I, I, I've said, I think I said this Sunday, I hear people all the time praying, you know, God heal me, heal, God do this, God do this. And 99% of the time, God's already done it. You just need to believe it. But before you can believe it, you got to know about it. And then he goes on in verse 19, what is the incomparable greatness of his power available for us who believe according to the exercise of his mighty strength, which he accomplished in Christ. All of the things that God has done for us, he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's when we, we became, now I realize there's kind of a dichotomy because God sees us saved before we were ever born. He sees us saved the second Jesus came out of the grave. When he looked at Jesus, he saw us in him. We hadn't even been created yet. So, you know, there's part of this with the foreknowledge of God and God's outside of time and we're in time. But we, all of these things that we're supposed to be acting in faith for, God not only did them already when he raised Christ from the dead, but the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead, he's made available to us to answer our faith demands. So it's not like we're coming at this from an attitude of, oh, I'm just a poor beggar. I'm just a poor worm. You know, I'm nothing. I heard a guy at seminary years ago. Um, it was a typical, you know, city school. They had... I don't know, five or 6,000 students at this school and had like 300 parking spaces. <laughs> so you could never find a place to park. And this guest speaker came in and he said, and I drove around and he said, I had a really hard time. I thought I was going to be late because I couldn't find a place to park. And he said, I finally had to go off into the city streets and park. He said, I hope my car will be there when I get back because some of the residents that have it towed, you parked in front of their house. But he said, but... You know, he said, I learned, I, I decided a long time ago I wasn't going to pray for God to find me parking places because God's got more important things to do than answer my parking places prayers. And when he said that, I thought, you know, that really sounds humble and, and uh, unselfish, but really it's kind of a, if God's not big enough to find me a parking place and deal with world peace at the same time, he's not very big. God doesn't care how small our needs are. He wants to meet every need, even the little tiny ones, um, because he's got more than enough power to, to get all of those things accomplished. And then he goes on and he describes in verse 20 through um, 23, it's um, that, that power 
is the power that accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he makes the point in verse 21. I like the way um, Mounts puts it. Um, Barclay says, above every rule and authority. Um, New King James in verse 20 says, um, or 21 says, far above all principality and power. Mount says it's this power when he's seated at the right hand. He's infinitely superior to every ruler, authority, power, or dominion, or ev- and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You know, it's, it's kind of um, it's ironic that he mentions there, not only in this age, but in the ones that come, um, a verse we always read at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, just a little side thought, chase a little rabbit there. When it says the child is born, that's talking about his humanity. When it talks about a son is given, that's talking about his divinity. A child, human child, has to be born. Divinity can't be born. So the body of Jesus was created when God spoke to Mary, and Mary received what he said, but they, gave, they placed the spirit, second person of the Godhead, God placed his spirit in that body. So he was fully human, fully God, which is really a contradiction in terms. It's interesting when we were talking about in connection with Ephesians, the power that that God had when he raised him from the dead. The Orthodox Jewish Bible, and I'm not going to try to read it because it mixes in Hebrew and, and, and English both, but when it says everlasting father, it, the, the Hebrew word there is aviad, which they translate as possessor of eternity. So this isn't just something that, um, well, Jesus is going to rule because there is a time at the end of the millennial reign after Jesus brings in the new heaven and the new earth that says he will turn all authority back to the father. But in, and this is where the mystery of the Godhead comes in. He's going to turn and give the authority back to the Father, yet he and the Father are one. So it's kind of like he's given himself the authority. And the ultimate, ultimate concept here, he's already possessor of eternity. And it's, I also want to, I, I saw a guy one time try to do a, um, an illustration of eternal life and eternity. And he did it with a rope. And he said, you know, I've got the rope here. And he had the end. And he said, this is, this is time. And he said, it has a beginning, but it will have no end. And he pointed down and, and the rope went out the building. It was a very long rope. And I'm, when I saw it, I thought, he's completely missed it. 
the eternity really doesn't have anything to do with time because Einstein, it's interesting, I've been watching this biography of Einstein on the History Channel, and Einstein was the first one to realize that time was not um, unalterable. There, there is a, a principle in physics: the speed of light does not change, no matter the conditions. It doesn't matter whether it's going through space, through air, through water, through glass. It always travels at 186,000 miles a second. What it goes through, the medium it goes through, never changes. And yet Einstein found there, there were some things here that do change, and he couldn't reconcile that because. Um, um, Newtonian physics said that, that the speed of light can never change and that time is fixed and it cannot change. And you could not, there were paradoxes they were running into that didn't work until Einstein finally had the, the thought, what if time is not absolute? What if time is relative? And what they found is that time is relative. The faster you go, the slower time moves. To the point where it, it's been proven so far, geostationary satellites we have for um, GPS, they're so far out and moving so fast that they have to synchronize the clocks in those satellites with the atomic clocks on the Earth. And when they first fire, started firing up the GPS system, none of it worked. And it just, the computers were, were given gibberish out until finally somebody just you know, after weeks of working on this and they, they are looking at each other saying, the math is right. The computer won't give us the right answer, but the math is right, and I don't know where the problem is. Finally, somebody said, you know what? I think what the problem is is that we're sitting stationary on the Earth. Those satellites are moving at something like 30, 40,000 miles an hour to, because they're so far out in orbit to stay over the same spot all the time. They have to move very fast. And they're moving fast enough that time has slowed down for them so the clocks can't sink. So they had to go back, change their math to account for those satellites moving slower in time. And when they did that, GPS system just popped to life and it gave accurate readings and we use it in everything. I said all that to say that when, when the Bible talks about eternity, it's not talking about length of time because time is a function of our universe. Where God lives, where the, the spirit realm stands outside of our universe because that's where God was when he said, let there be light, and our universe sprung into existence. And even physicists will tell us our universe is a finite place. It's a Actually, it looks, you know, when they try to visualize it, it looks a lot like a balloon because it started very small and it's expanding in every direction. So it's, it's the, the edge of the universe is getting bigger and bigger and, and the question comes, and this is where you get out of science and get into philosophy, what's on the other side of that edge? Well, on the other side of that edge is the spiritual realm where God exists. Our universe has time. His universe, where the spirit realm is, there is no concept of time. They don't have time. 
So when, when the Bible talks about eternity, it's not talking about time without end. It's talking about an existence outside of time. And it's, it's not just long, but it's also wide with benefits and deep with benefits. It's, it's eternal in all of its graces. It's perfection beyond perfection. When God grants us eternal life, it's not just length, it's quality. And, and it's, it's quality to the, the um, extent that God, God will expend what he expended bringing Christ out of the grave, or more if need be. I can't imagine anything would require more power than that. I compare it to buying a car. When I go buy a car, I buy the best I can buy. I can only get what I can afford. Well, God expended his own son. And we saw last week he, he used the power in his own right arm. When it only took his fingertips, the power in his fingers to create the entire universe, he used the power of his arm to bring Christ out of the grave. Well, he's willing to ex- make all that expenditure for us. It's, there, there's an incomparable greatness of a power that's available to us. That power is, is available to do everything and bring us everything that God says we can have, which, you know, he is the possessor of eternity. <clears throat> this is all pointed in my direction. Now, when he did all of this, he seated him on the throne where he is, verse 21, according to Mounts, he's infinitely superior to every other ruler and authority. I've got, a, I've got opposition. I've got an enemy. Who's, he doesn't want me to get any of these things. But Jesus is superior to all of them. And I, I made this point in the last couple of weeks. We sometimes equate God and the devil or Jesus and the devil, good and bad. But if you're going to equate anything with the devil, you have to equate Michael the archangel. They were created on an equal basis. God is so far above any angelic being that there is no comparison. And we, when compared to the angels, stand in a higher place than angels do. So even though, even if, even the fact that we are higher than the angels, God has said, you're already superior to them, but I'm going to give you the, the authority of my name. Because he says in verse 22, he placed all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church or for the church. When, when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand, he said, I'm putting you here so that your church will know and, and be able to function out of your authority. There's nothing higher. Even God the Father has temporarily handed all of that authority to Jesus. He won't oppose anything that Jesus does. How, how much less than you know, when, when we have to stand for healing or for finances or for, you know, whatever our need is. So when God does these things, it's not like, well, here, you know, here's a cup, fill it up. 
He said, here's a cup, and then he dumps a, you know, a, a, a swimming pool worth of water at you. And when, when, when Psalm 23 says, my cup runs over, it's not just a little running over. It's not dripping over. It's gushing over. There's, there's just no way we can, can look at this and, and say any, any lack that I have is due to a God, lack of God's power. It's a lack of me being enlightened on what God's given me and me not standing up and taking my authority and beating the tar out of the devil, backing him off and believing that God's going to do that for me. And, and then in the, the, the 23rd verse, which is where he sums all this up, when he talks about, um, he said, backing up to 22, he placed all things under Christ's feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That is a tremendous statement right there. When he says that, that the church is his body, we are the body of Christ. I think New King James in verse um, 23 says, which is his body. I thought it, it named, it said the body of Christ. But other places Paul will use that term, the body of Christ. In effect, and I, I actually read this out of Calvin's commentary, and if it had been anybody less authoritative than Calvin, I probably wouldn't have even brought it up. But Calvin wrote this and on about verse 23, and he said, It's our highest honor that Christ considers himself incomplete until he has united to all of his body. Jesus is God. So there's nothing lacking in him, technically speaking. And yet he has said, I, I don't consider myself complete until all of my children come and join my church and become my body. My body is incomplete till the last person who's going to get born again gets born again. That is an awesome thought. That God himself, I mean, it's one thing to, to, to love me enough to raise me up to eternal life. But to say, I'm not complete until you're part of me. And I'm not going to, get, I'm not going to finish my work until all of my kids come in. Then my body will be complete. Then we can, you know, I'll rapture you all out. We'll go. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't still be people saved. People will get saved during the tribulation. But he considers us that valuable that we are his body. And I, I love my wife. I love my kids. But even Paul says it later in Ephesians, you know, when he's talking about the relationship of a husband and a wife, he says, you know, there's no man that doesn't cherish his own body. I mean, let's face it. I, you know, I get hurt. I baby this thing. You know, a few months ago, I, I wrenched my back. And, man, it let me know really quick that it didn't like what I did. And, you know, the old joke Doctor asked, you know, has you do a movement? He said, does that hurt? Yeah, doc, that hurts. He said, well, don't do that anymore. 
Well, you know, that's exactly what your body demands. When, when you do something, it hurts. Your body says, every time you do that, I'm going to hurt. So what do we do? We just quit, quit doing what hurts. Well, I, I, I went, I spent money. I went and tried to figure out what's wrong. Is there anything I can do to help get this healed faster? I believe God f- for the healing. But it was all because it's my body and it's the only one I get. And when it finally wears out, you know, I don't get to go to the, to the body store and buy a new body. Like I do a car. My car's pretty just about worn out. And I've already started preliminarily. I got to start looking around and, and finding another car. What meets my needs and, you know, what do I want? How much can I afford? Because I don't have an unlimited budget. Can't do that with my body. <laughs> when it gets, you know, when it, when it has problems, I go to the medical people and I believe God and I do my best to get it repaired. But there comes a time if it's not repairable, you just have to you have to leave. You you get evicted. Well, I char- I I take care of it because of that reason. Jesus is saying, "You're my body." As much as I cherish my body, he cherishes his even more. And if part of his body is hurting, all of the body ought to be hurting. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest crimes in, in um, you know, in, in the church when we just don't, sometimes we just don't care that what's going on with other people, we get so caught up in our own little world and in our own needs and, you know, um, the classic old prayer, you know, my name's Jimmy, and all I want is gimme, gimme, gimme. Well, there's more to life than my little circle. I need to look out and start looking at the needs of other people and to minister. Now, God has called me to minister to those closest to me first. You know, Paul said if a man won't take care of his own family, you know, uh, basically he's just, there's just not much worth. He said... In fact, he, he said, also, if a man won't work, let him go hungry. Um, he wasn't much for social welfare. <laughs> you know, if you got the ability to do it, you ought to do it. And, and that doesn't mean that, that, you know, if people don't have the ability, you know, somebody's disabled, we take care of them. But um, we need to be concerned about what's going on because God's concerned about what's going on. He is concerned about his body. And when we're concerned about the rest of the body of Christ and we're standing together and not fussing and fighting and and attacking one another, um, or even more so when somebody in the body falls or backslides, um, you know, we're, we're one of the few armies in the world that, you know, we shoot our wounded. Ought not be that way. We ought to express the same love and concern to to um, the body that gets wounded. As um, you know, one I, I think it's part of the Marine Code. I know it's it is part of the Special Forces Code. You know, we don't leave a man behind. And we I've, I've seen a lot of Christians abandon other Christians because they had a moral failing like well we've all had moral failings and it really comes down to it you know sin is sin and uh, 
There are some that are worse than others, but we're not the one to decide that. We need to reach out and minister to people when they're having problems. Because he's put the whole power of, of his, of his um, creation, of his world inside of us to go meet the needs of other people. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.